Today on Reparations in Action. And it is what the African People's Socialist Party calls domestic colonialism, where the colonizer brings the colonized into the land that it has stolen from the indigenous people. So this is colonialism. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Uhuru! You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, The White Lies Shattered Series. My name is Jamie Simpson. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with Black Power. Currently, we are in a series exposing the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast weekly. Today, we are doing part three of the lie that the white man settled the West. With us today is Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence. And joining us again today is Jesse Neville, the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Uhuru and welcome, Chairwoman Penny. Uhuru, Jamie and Jesse, and Uhuru to our listeners. I am really glad to be back on Reparations in Action And I'm very happy that we can continue to take on this really important question of the right of sovereignty and national liberation of the indigenous people of this land, whose land this is. And we want to focus today, which is the third in in our series, on this question. Um, We want to focus on the discovery, quote unquote, of the bodies of 215 little children whose bodies had been um, found in the Kamloops School in Canada, the residential school in in Canada um, just recently. I believe this happened, they were found in May. And these are little children um, from the First Nations of Canada, the indigenous people who had been kidnapped from their parents, from their people, from their community, and forced into colonial child prison torture chambers called the residential schools. And these schools in Canada, although this, this of course, happened in the United States as well, and uh, it was, I believe the United States was absolutely the instigator of this. It also this kind of thing happened in on the continent of Africa, and it's part and parcel of settler colonialism in a particular kind of way of white people coming in to a stolen land and as part of the colonizer nation participates and insists upon the genocide of the indigenous people. And part of that is crushing the attempting to crush the um, the culture and the identification of the children with their their people. Um, this is part of of genocide, 
and that um, that we're going to talk about about that today, and that I saw some you know articles about this Kamloops school in in British Columbia, Canada, um, and it was one of 141 such schools that again continued up into the year 1996. And that I saw some testimonies, which we're going to hear in a little bit, of survivors of that genocidal experience that um, still bear incredible trauma today, as it does their whole community. And I want to begin, before we get into this discussion, saluting Chairman Omalia Shatella, uh, the leader of the African People's Socialist Party, under whose leadership I work and organize as a member of the African People's Solidarity Committee, which has the assignment to organize in the white community to bring the colonial reality and the complicity of white people and our responsibility into um, the white society in the belly of the beast behind enemy lines, so to speak, and to fight for reparations to African people and to recognize also that this land belongs to the indigenous people. Nothing about that has changed. And um, it is still part of a struggle, um, a very serious struggle of indigenous people from Alaska to the tip of Chile to, um, to, regain, to regain possession of their stolen land. So I wanna salute Chairman Omali Shatella, our leader, leader of the African People's Socialist Party, and also Deputy Chair Ona Zinea Shatella and all of the members of the African People's Socialist Party working for the liberation of Africa and African people inside of the Americas, <clears throat> inside of all throughout Africa, in Europe, the Caribbean, and wherever African people have been forcibly dispersed around the world. So, you know, our revolutionary assignment is to win reparations. And that is the spirit that we are talking about, these, um, these atrocities that are being exposed to the world to see. And again, that there were in Canada more than 140 of these so-called residential schools where, where children in, of the First Nation, indigenous children, were kidnapped terrorized, brutalized, beaten, sexually abused, and murdered daily. And um, we will hear some of the people, the indigenous people, the First Nations, talking about their experiences. And if they were speaking their language, playing their drums, or even hugging, or even speaking to each other, including their own brothers and sisters, they could be murdered, they were electrocuted on their sexual organs or um, in chained to beds, thrown down the stairs. I mean, they, they could be terrorized or murdered right on the spot for doing that. And that these schools were an institution of colonial genocide of the imperialist government of Canada and the U.S. And that the government of Canada assigned to the Catholic Church to administer these institutions of genocide, which the Catholic Church did with just intense, relentless relish in their ongoing 
violence against these children and and the entire um, indigenous or First Nation community. <clears throat> and you know, in this in in the articles and in this whole process, since um, this particular example of the genocide of the First Nations was exposed with these actual bodies being detected um, on the grounds of the school in British Columbia, the government of Canada has taken no responsibility. And actually, they're blaming the Catholic Church, which of course is guilty, and they were carrying out colonial policies of Canada, but they were carrying out the colonial governmental policies of the Canadian government with the complicity of the white people, their settler colonizers. And we do note that indigenous people of Canada do refer to themselves as First Nations. And they have stated for 150 years that these have, this is what has happened to them. But the government and white people, of course, didn't believe them because we as the colonizer nation sit on the pedestal of the genocide and oppression of indigenous and African people and have the power of life and death over the colonized and have the luxury to say, we don't believe you when we are inflicting it, when we are part of doing that. So the Canadian government held a so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission between the year 2008 to 2015, which actually, as is so often the case, as it was in occupied Zania or South Africa and in many other places, truth and reconciliation programs actually serve to cover up the genocide rather than expose it. And they end up, um, you know, just basically letting off the hook the complicity of the white community or the government itself. So, but at this, this, in this whole process, um, between 2008 and 2015, thousands of, of indigenous people testified at these commission hearings that were held throughout Canada about the genocide that took place at these schools. But the indigenous people were paid, for the most part, no reparations whatsoever. And it was just kind of like they could make these testimonies and then they were put in some kind of audio files somewhere and hidden away. And, and you know, there's no consequences that have, have ever been paid around this. And including the fact that the Canadian government did not do the investigation to find out if the bodies of these children were buried on the grounds of these so-called schools, that it was actually the indigenous people, the First Nation people of British Columbia who paid for it themselves um, with a kind of using a kind of a technology of ground penetrating radar to, um, you know, to seek out and find the bodies. I've also read that the, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg, that in the other 140 or so schools, so-called schools or institutions of genocide, there are an equal number, if not more, of the bodies of, 
of little children that can be found there. Although um, the indigenous people are saying that the government is is going into those schools and using uh, bulldozers and stuff to turn over the ground so that it can't be detected. And I'm sure that is true. And that the, um, the government has done certain kinds of things where, and I think even in the truth and reconciliation hearings, that if people are granted a small pittance, which of course is in no way reparations, which would be the return of their stolen land, um, that they have to sign an, you know, a, an agreement not to prosecute further the Canadian government. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's hideous. It's hideous that, um, you know, that these kinds of, of genocidal policies of a system built on the um, genocide of the indigenous people would be just continuing today in so many insidious ways. So, you know, in response to this recent finding of the bodies of the 215 children, there have been massive indigenous demonstrations throughout Canada. And the response has been profound from indigenous people from throughout this entire hemisphere from Alaska to the tip of Chile. And I, I think that's that's really powerful. And in fact, I saw um, a picture on social media of an indigenous person, um, or, you know, or, or a group that had brought down a statue of the white colonizer who had a statue because he was the one who created this, this these so-called schools of, um, where genocide was, was committed. Um, and, you know, it shows them, you know, throwing red blood-colored blood paint on it and, and hitting it and, and bringing it down. So, you know, it's just that we have seen in this past year how the colonial question has erupted around the world and that it is, it is so powerful to see and to understand that, you know, in this last year, with the uprisings that we've seen in this country in response to the police murder of George Floyd just a little, little over a year ago, um, where the colonial question just, you know, zoomed to the forefront, that that was the responsibility in so many ways of Chairman O'Malley Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party that has been raising the fact for 50 years that the conditions facing African and indigenous people are colonialism, the domination of a whole people by a foreign and alien state power and colonizer nation for profit and for the economic benefit of the white colonizer citizens. And that while we, we know that the, this land that is called um, the Americas, North and South America, belongs to the indigenous people, and that is settler colonialism, we also know that for African people who were forcibly brought here um, as um, part of the enslavement of African people and the assault on Africa, which created the wealth 
that white people experience and that white power experiences uh, here and around the world is also colonialism. And it is what the African People's Socialist Party calls domestic colonialism, where the colonizer brings the colonized into the land that it has stolen from the indigenous people. So this is colonialism. And it's even in the New York Times, articles about this uh, struggle of the First Nations and the Kamloops School in particular are raising the colonial question because the people are. And I think that this is a really, really powerful thing that shows the depth of the anti-colonial struggle, the struggles for national liberation that are being brought to the fore. And that it clearly exposes the, um, you know, just the uselessness, the waste of time of an understanding like racism and a fight against racism when this has been a genocidal struggle for power, for land, for resources, for stolen labor, stolen human beings, um, far more than anything that the understanding of racism could encompass, but is actually a, a colonial situation that has given de democratic rights, wealth and opportunity, social wealth, generational wealth, every kind of um, aspect of life for white people here and around the world. And this is understanding from Chairman Omali Shetela and the African People's Socialist Party and the political understandings of African internationalism. I also wanted to say that, yes, the Catholic Church played a huge role in this genocide. And, and you know, because we're citing the Canadian government doesn't let the Catholic Church off the hook in any way that the Catholic Church played a role in this genocide, a serious role. And you'll hear some of that, about that in the um, testimonies from the First Nation people. But that um, the Catholic Church from the beginning of the assault on Africa has played a key role in the genocide of the indigenous people from the very beginning, from the moment that Christopher Columbus set foot onto what is now Haiti and began the systematic um, extermination of the indigenous people in the Caribbean. And that the Catholic role, the Catholic church has um, played a role in the enslavement of African people, the kidnapping and trafficking of African people, and, and in the direct colonial domination of African people in Africa in particular, and um, that where um, the, the Catholic Church played a role in kidnapping African children on the continent of Africa in similar kinds of colonial schools where the children were terrorized, murdered, killed in order to turn them into British subjects or Europeans of some sort or the other. And um, that... You know, African people have also had their children kidnapped, sold as commodities during the U.S. government's legal enslavement of African people. And also during the second so-called second trade in African people, when African people after 1808, when when the U.S. government outlawed the importation of Africans from Africa into the U.S., there became a massive 
um, process and very, very lucrative of breeding African human beings and throwing them into breeding pens where the wombs of African women were used to produce great wealth for white people through their infants at being sold as commodities by white slave masters. I mean, this is the Catholic Church has played a huge role in all of this. The Catholic Church first divided up the world in the um, 16th century, 17th century, divided up the world for the genocide of the indigenous people and the theft of their land and to allow for various countries in Europe to have plantations and to uh, be able to kidnap African human beings and bring them to um, the Americas as a mode of production that immediately created this burst of wealth that the world had never seen before in what was called the triangular trade. So this is why, you know, we see that Brazil speaks Portuguese, that Argentina speaks Spanish, North America speaks English, and Martinique speaks French because the Catholic Church, the Pope, divided up the lands to make sure that all of the major um, countries of Europe would be able to have some of these lands to, to colonize, to carry out the genocide, to enslave African people, and to enrich their coffers and the conditions of white people. The Catholic Church also ran the missions in California all up and down the coast in the um, 1600s and 1700s, uh, up and down the coast of California. These, these are tourist spots now. You could go visit it. Uh, thousands of people do every year. But that this is where the indigenous people in these so-called missions were kidnapped and worked to death and where there are said to be mass graves surrounding these these uh, churches, church missions as well. And uh, I'm sure without doubt that that is absolutely true. The Catholic Church also in, owned and enslaved African people, such as famously come out about Georgetown University, where it has been exposed that the Jesuits sold scores of African people in the 19th century as part of the university's fundraising program and drive that saved Georgetown University, owned by the Jesuits, which is a Catholic order of priests, among other things, known for genocide and known for pedophilia, um, that, you know, used, sold their African human beings in order to save their um, bankrupt university. So the Catholic Church is, is uh, famous infamous for its sexual abuse and the amount of, of resources that it's had to spend on lawsuits on that. It's had to sell some of their property, which they sold, stole from the indigenous people to begin with. And like the, the Boy Scouts, which I read is actually bankrupt because of they are paying out so much money around uh, sexual abuse um, scandals and, and lawsuits that actually the Boy Scouts were born out of the British colonial domination of Southern Africa. Um, Lord Baden-Powell was the founder, and he was responsible for um, using white Boy Scouts to basically murder 
about a thousand African children, not to mention his role in the uh, sexual abuse of, of African colonized children there. So that's another story, and maybe we will deal with that at some point. But in any case, um, we, you know, the, the sexual abuse scandals, quote unquote, of the Catholic Church are well known, and that colonialism and this kind of abuse of children go together. That's where it comes from. And it, it, you know, it, it bothers me when I hear people taking on the question of pedophilia outside of that context, because it was part and parcel of colonialism in Africa, in the Americas, and, and everything else. And so, um, you know, so much wealth has been stolen from the indigenous people from, um, from Africa in the Catholic Church's own um, colonial plunder that the Vatican City, which is the headquarters of the Catholic Church, as its own city-state inside of Rome, Italy, is possibly the richest entity of the sort in the entire world. It has immense gold and silver and all kinds of other just treasures um, that it has stolen from colonized people around the world to enrich all of these parasitic priests and you know nuns and uh, really, really outrageous. So, you know, for the U.S. And, and Canada and for capitalism itself, they were born through the assault on African people and the theft of indigenous people. This is the original sin of the U.S. and Canada. Chairman O'Malley Chatella often quotes Karl Marx as saying, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the Aboriginal population, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. This is what Karl Marx called the primitive accumulation of capital, the startup money of capitalism. Where did that come from? He questioned. And he says, you know, it came from the theft of. Of, the, of gold and, and silver in, in the Americas, the extirpation, which is you know, just the condemning and enslavement and entombment in minds of the indigenous people of the Americas who were worked to death in seven years in the silver mines and so many other ways and wiped out so rapidly. That's what he's talking about. This is where the wealth came of Europe of white people everywhere, the turning of Africa into a war and a hunting ground for the commercial hunting of, of African people. This is where the rosy dawn of capitalist production and, and the industrial revolution came from. And the chairman quotes Marx as saying, the primitive accumulation plays in political economy about the same as original sin in theology. Adam bit the apple, and thereupon sin fell upon the human race. Its origin is supposed to be explained when it is told as an anecdote of the past. And I think that, you know, that is, is so critical because when we look at it as the, this original sin, until this original sin, the primary contradiction 
of this whole society and the world today is dealt with, nothing, nothing, nothing will change because imperialism and colonialism will continue to be intact, to do what they have to do, to continue to um, to, to just wipe out, brutalize, murder, um, bomb, you know, just rape, pillage African people, indigenous people. It's never going to change until they have power over their lives. And Chairman Omali Shatella has written what capitalism did was to rip the vast majority of humanity out of the productive process in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, Australia, and what has come to be known as the Americas. The hundreds of millions dead due to the slave trade and slavery itself, the millions exterminated everywhere Europeans ventured. These are people whose hands were forever removed from a relationship with nature that would result in production. And as the chairman says, the modus operandi, the reason, the motive for life itself is to be able to produce and reproduce real life for the needs of the people themselves. But African people and indigenous people have been forced to produce and reproduce life for white people. And that, that is coming to an end. The African People's Socialist Party is very, very serious about self-government, fighting for power, having the return of Africa, which can only be free and liberated when imperialism is gone. That's the reality. It's got to go. And uplifting and, and um, standing in solidarity with the indigenous people, the return of their land, and all oppressed and colonized peoples around the world as to be free and liberated. Uhuru, Uhuru, thank you so much for laying all of that out, uh, Chairwoman Penny. And uh, I just want to agree with all of what you what you just put forward, including that profound statement from Chairman Amalia Shatella, which uh, really destroys the um, the the concept put forward by Marx and others that capitalism somehow represented a progressive development for humanity. Um, that actually it was a setback. It was progress for white people, but it pushed uh, millions of and billions of other human beings. Um, out of the productive process and uh, and actually uh, prevented genuine progress from being able to materialize. Um, and just just hearing all of this, I mean, I think most people listening to this would be at this point uh, trembling with with rage, uh, just listening and, and disgust. I mean, it's stomach turning to hear about um, what white people, what colonialism, what we have done to the indigenous people and to African people as part of this uh, colonial history. And, you know, in line with this whole theme of white lies shattered, we want to take a look at this lie that this is somehow a thing of the past, um, that this is something that happened a long time ago and that things are different now. And uh, for that reason, we want to take a moment to look at the conditions faced by the indigenous people today, both in Canada and in the United States, uh, where the First Nations people in Canada live in, in colonial poverty and just extreme destitution, white people's incomes and wealth are 75% greater than for the indigenous people. The indigenous people of Canada are only 3% of the adult population, but 26% 
of the prison population. The, the First Nations people, they have struggled. They continue to struggle to re regain their lands against oil, uranium, and diamond mining and have waged incredible and righteous uh, forms of resistance uh, in, in the face of that and, um, and have continued to see their people murdered and slaughtered by the colonizers, including the uh, genocidal mass murders of indigenous women where uh, both in Canada and in the US, thousands of indigenous women's bodies uh, have been found. And um, in the United States, over 5,000 indigenous women have been murdered or abducted in the Texas border town of Juarez, Mexico. Uh, hundreds of indigenous women were murdered. In Canada, they, there's a term, the Red River Women, and there's indigenous people, the government doesn't do a damn thing, obviously, they're, in, they're complicit. The indigenous people Indigenous women actually walk the edge of this river, finding the bodies of indigenous, other indigenous women who were slaughtered, raped, tortured, and murdered by white men, white people. Um, then there's also the COVID-19 colonial virus, which looked very different for white people than it did for African and indigenous people and still does. Uh, and the, the rates of uh, COVID-19 amongst the indigenous people have skyrocketed, have been disproportionately high where right now the rate of positive COVID-19 cases on First Nations reservations or concentration camps as of June 1st is 188% the rate of the Canadian population. Although the fatality rate, 61% of the rate of the Canadian population. And the United States, just to put all this in perspective, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, totality of the genocide against the native people that their population has been reduced to only in the US 3.1 million people, million indigenous people living on their own stolen land. And in comparison to the rest of the population, that is a tiny number. That is only less than 0.9% of the population of this land, which belongs to them is indigenous people. And across the United States, one out of three indigenous people are living in poverty. The median income is $23,000 a year. And those numbers are sort of obscure the reality because over 20% of the households on the indigenous so-called reservations make less than $5,000 annually. And in Canada, the same place where we've been talking about, 50% of indigenous children are living in poverty. The unemployment rate on the Blackfoot reservation in Montana is 69% compared to the, in 2014, the US national unemployment rate was 6.7%. And even during the worst part of the Great Depression, it was 25%. So this is colonialism. This is the colonial uh, reality faced by the indigenous people who face uh, settler colonialism on their own land. Uh, and according to the 2000 census, this was um, in the year 2000, indigenous people are living on incomes less than half of the general US population. So of course that's a great underestimate and it's even worse now. So uh, we just wanted to, to show that the genocide uh, against the indigenous people is ongoing. And so is, so is the resistance, so is the fight back, so is the struggle to destroy colonialism and regain sovereignty and national liberation of their land. Uhuru. Uhuru, Penny and Jesse, thank you for that. We want to move now 
to hearing some testimonies from the First Nations people who experienced this genocide. And uh, before we go to this, I think it's important to say, it probably goes without saying, but we should say this is graphic, disturbing uh, stories. This is the reality that Indigenous people have faced. These testimonies were recorded for the documentary film Unrepentant, Kevin Annette, and Canada's Genocide, a 2006 film directed by Louis Lawless, which can be seen in its entirety on YouTube. Punishment by restraining me to the bed, by putting a restrainer on me and holding me down in the bed. Um, I had bed problems as wetting the bed, and they would tie me in bed and put an electric underneath my sheet so that when I did wet, I would electrocute myself. Did they put you in a hospital? Yes, I did. Well, they uh, gave me some drugs or something like that. What kind, what happened I to you? I don't know what kind of drug it was. What happened to you when they gave you the drugs? Hey, oh, they uh, put me in there like a padded room. Padded room, like, I was all strapped down. That was after you reported the girl? Yeah. Finding the girl's body? Yeah. I'd seen them burn hands of kids when they're three years old and five with a little spike in their hand and like that, like a shock thing. Electric shock yeah. device? Why did they shock the kids? Because the kids wouldn't listen to the Catholic priests. He used it on my brother's penis. He electrocuted his penis there till my brother passed out. And he was laughing, brother. My brother said he was laughing while he was doing it. You'd like to see him in pain, I guess. Then the police force, I, I was involved in a few investigations regarding the victims of a residential school where one particular individual had went home in the summer and learned how to speak his own language. And his dad had taught him how to carve. <clears throat> and he went back to school. He, uh, he, uh, he continued doing this, speaking his own language and carving. And the teacher caught him and took his knife away and broke his carving up. And, and he took a pencil and he drove it right through his hand. And you, you still see the scar where he drove the pencil right through his, his hand. Then there was other times where they put us in a tub and then they had a bucket of snakes, you know, them black and yellow snakes. And they'd throw that in the tub while we're having a bath. And the snakes are, they can't stand that hot water. They try and crawl all over our bodies, trying to get away from that hot water. And they'd all just curl up because they die immediately. And those are some of the horrifying things that they'd done to us to discipline us, to keep quiet. So I watched. And she was standing at the top of the stairs. And he kicked her. She went rolling downstairs. She ended up, she was, she was uh, laying like this. Her eyes were open, but she wasn't moving. She wasn't crying. So I see that all the time. Her name was Maggie. She was two years older than me. And she was murdered in there by a nun. She pushed out the window, second story up, and she died. But nothing was done about it. We weren't allowed to see a lawyer or nothing. 
they just covered this up. There's about 50% of the kids that died of TB. And uh, one thing I can tell too is that the chief over there now, her mother had 12 siblings. She was the last one that lived out of that school. She's seen 12 of her brothers and sisters go in there, plus herself, but she came out. She said then the other ones never made it home. I organized a lot of the survivors to come and give testimony at this. And at that tribunal, um, anything you could ever imagine that went on in a Nazi death camp was described. There was a group of people from the Cooper Island Catholic School who described being um, part of a medical experiment in 1939 when German-speaking doctors were injecting them in their chests with these chemicals that was killing them. I'm 100% sure that we're used as guinea pigs in these local hospitals for some unknown reason. We were, were lugged off the hospital, I can remember that. And I know it wasn't for dentistry, I know I wasn't sick. I read Kevin Annette's document starting about six months ago, and it helped me understand how come my memory <clears throat> wasn't, was so vague. In reading parts of it, they talked about shock treatment. In my last year there, the spring of the of 1961, I was taken from the school to Charles Campbell Indian Hospital, and from Charles Campbell Indian Hospital to Panoka Mental Institute. <clears throat> I don't know if I was there a week or two weeks, but I have vague memories of it, but the, the memory that flashed back for me is laying on this table and stuff in my head, and then these flashing lights just continually. They had put needles in my head and had hooked them up electrically and would zap me. At that time, my arms were put in a chair and locked in so I couldn't move. And my head was put on a, a brace in the back so I could not, I was like this, I couldn't move. And um, I can't tell you how long they had done it. All I remember is that I still... To this day, I still get a, you know, like my brain will still have that kind of a kick from it, right? Right. And um, they had done a lot of, a lot of bad things by um, putting medications in the food while I was in the dark room, bringing the food in, and you had to eat it, and if you didn't eat it, then if you threw it up into a bag, they put it on the plate again and make you eat it. We are listening to profound testimonies of First Nations survivors of the genocidal so-called residential schools, which only were closed by the Canadian government in 1996. I couldn't have any more children after Dr. Darby got to me. He made an announcement in our village that anyone who wasn't in church on Sunday had to report to him for a special procedure. I never went to his United Church since they did so much harm. But Darby was missionary, so his word was law. So the Mounties came and got me and brought me to Darby. He gave me a shot. Next thing I knew, I was in bed, all bruised and hurting. I was missing all my gold teeth. Something didn't feel right inside me. I never could conceive after that. 
Later, another doctor told me I'd been sterilized. George Darby, he did that to hundreds of our women. He took each of us in there one by one. And he had, had us bend over and had Vaseline with, with him. He did that to each of us three times, I remember that. To satisfy himself. To enjoy himself on little kids. I forgot how old I was. Either six, seven, or eight. Maybe nine, I forget. But I remember, I'll never forget. Mr. Moore. He said, you know what, sis? He says, I can't wait to get out of this hell hole. I'm going to tell everything. And then the phone went dead. Uh, people at resident at Cooper Island always listened to our phone calls and censored our letters back, you know, coming in and going out. So I, you know, like I was afraid for him, but I didn't think it was going to be as bad as it was. It turned out as bad as it was. Two days later, we got a phone call saying that he hung himself, he committed suicide, but I'd never ever ever um, believed in my heart that he'd ever do that. They had them walk through the gym while Richard was still hanging and told them that it could happen to them. My brother died because of a cattle prod, of a shock of a cattle prod. When he was five, when he was four years old, they dragged him by the hair and they cut it. They cut his skin right off his head. The pastors did that with a whip, like a horse whip, but it was sharp, with these little blades on it. And when I was in there, I heard him scream for help. And right away, there was a lot of blood on the floor. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't take him to a hospital or the nurse or nothing. They what, what happened then? What, what happened when, when, when I was in there? I heard him scream, still scream for help. Rick, help! They're torturing me. I'm gonna die. So he died right away. Like that, he was my only. He was my only. Uh, he was my only best friend and my only brother that I always loved. One particular incident was uh, where nun sexually abused. Uh, well, sexually abused a, a young boy, and and as a result, the nun became pregnant and and gave birth to a baby. And uh, after it gave birth to the baby, this was one incident that. Um, they they killed the baby and they had uh, they had the young fella dig a grave for the baby. Another incident was a a lady watched the witnessed a nun in Cranbrook uh, where they gave a baby and uh, had her participate and drown the baby in the bucket of water. You know, and now it's become a cornerstone of some building in Cranbrook. Look what you've done to to the First Nation people. You have killed their kids. You have abused their mind. You have abused their bodies. 
physically and spiritually you have abused us. Not only the land, you have raped the land, you have polluted the land, you have polluted the minds of, of the native people, the kids, you have raped the kids, you killed the kids. That was testimony from the indigenous people of Canada from the 2006 documentary Unrepentant, Kevin Annette and Canada's Genocide, directed by Louis Lawless. And um, this is this is real. This is some absolutely unfathomable trauma that the indigenous people, like African people, like colonized people throughout the world, have experienced at the hands of settler colonialism. Um, Chairwoman Penny Hess wanted to invite you to speak to the significance of this. Yes, uh, Jamie, I I really unite with what you're saying and, and the summation that um, it is really important that we as white people, as the colonizers, hear this and see it and see it from the mouths of the people who experienced it. And what the one First Nation indigenous man is saying that white people, you have raped the people, you have killed the children, you have raped the children, you have, this is what you have done. And, you know, I, I, just, I just think that this is what it means to become an African internationalist. This is why we have to, to look at the world as it really is and what it means for us not only to, to be part of this, and all of us are, all of us are, are part of this and responsible for the, uh, the work of colonialism, for the actual terror against everyone else. And um, we have to come to terms with that. We have to take responsibility and say that our future is under the leadership of the African liberation movement that is under the leadership of the African working class and determined to overturn this vicious system of U.S. imperialism. And we have a choice of, of where to stand. Um, we have to look at, at the world as it really is, not as we want it to be. We have to recognize that, you know, it's so easy for us to just walk by, to say, oh, I didn't do that. I wasn't involved in that. But we do live on this land, and that's what it takes. And there's no inch of this land that is not soaked in the blood of the indigenous people. There is no inch of this land that is not soaked in the blood of African people. That um, the, their enslavement, the suffering, the lynchings, the murder, and the, just the endless ability of white power and colonialism and our complicity with it to inflict the most brutal, imaginable kind of violence upon African and colonized people every single day. We have to recognize this. This is why we fight for reparations. This is why everything that we have, every dream and aspiration, as the chairman has said, requires this kind of violence. 
requires murder and the uh, the rape and pillage of the indigenous people, the kidnapping and enslavement and terror of African people and the the rape and pillage and plunder of you know of their land and their children, and that um, our future is on the side of the African working class fighting to take power, fighting to build a world in which no one has something by raping a child or um, committing genocide against anyone else, that there can be a world, but it will not be led by white people. It will be led by the African, the indigenous, and the colonized of this planet, creating a world to meet the needs and in the interests of the African working class and poor and oppressed people on planet Earth. That's why reparations are owed. That's why we have to stand on the forward side of history and we call on people to join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, join in the future of this planet and under the leadership of the African Revolution, Uhuru. Penny Hess, Chair of the African People Solidarity Committee and Jesse Neville, Chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Thank you for joining me once again on this episode of Reparations in Action, White Lies Shattered, uh, and helping to shatter the lie that the white man settled the West. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations now! This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson, This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>